You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, listeners, and how the devil are you all? Well, I hope. Well, excuse the brief delay in getting back to you. My laptop decided it needed some medical attention, and I had to take the blighter into the Apple store. I have to say, they were very good indeed, and had it back to me within a week. But it did push back my schedule slightly. Still, if you're a patron, then you had yourselves a bonus show last week where I reviewed two James Cagney movies that are seldom seen these days. Plus, I presented a James Cagney performance that not many people have heard before. So if you're a patron and a Cagney fan, then rush on over to patreon.com slash attaboysecret and get that thing downloaded. And if you aren't a patron, then why not? so great to be a patron you get bonus stuff plus you become a co-producer plus you get to come to the film club night this month i'm just perusing the choices for this month and it contains some crackers so do get voting and i'll see you there hey are you a basil rathbone fan are you a nigel bruce fan did you love it when they teamed up to become sherlock holmes and dr watson have you seen all the movies they made have you heard all the radio shows they made I'm assuming you're saying yes to all these, by the way. Anyway, did you know that merely a fraction of those radio plays have actually survived? There are hundreds that have been lost, you know. Well, the fabulous Mr. Ian Dickerson, very nice chap, who I had the honour to actually meet this year, has only gone and collected the scripts for the lost shows and published them as a gorgeous book entitled Sherlock Holmes' The Lost Radio Scripts. I told you about it a little while ago. Such a great read. You can actually hear the plays in your head as you read. Brilliant, brilliant book. Well, anyway, Ian has only gone and published another one entitled, imaginatively, More Lost Radio Scripts. And I have to say, this may well trump the original in terms of entertainment. Ian was generous enough to send me a copy and it has fast become my favourite thing to read. I love it beyond words. If you want one, you can get it on Amazon right now and I highly recommend that you do so. And Ian, thank you, sir. So kind of you. In fact, have a newly created cantamentary, my dear Watson. Cantamentary, my dear Watson. Anyhow, let's get on with the show, shall we? And kicking us off this week is Cab Calloway with Minnie the Moocher. All together now. Hardy, 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 high. Only better than that. Thank you, Cab. Folks, now here's a story about Minnie the Moocher. She was a red hot hoochie coocher. She was the roughest, toughest rail. But Minnie had a heart as big as a hay whale. Holy, 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 Loved him though he was cocky. He took her down to China 
That was the excellent Cab Calloway with Minnie the Moocher. Holy, 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 ho. Lovely stuff. Hey, perhaps you're wondering just who on earth won the Audrey Hepburn DVD box set from last time's show. Well, wonder no longer. Lots of you entered, and we had answers ranging from Cary Grant to Ronald Coleman. But so many of you got this right. It was, of course, Audrey's co-star in Roman Holiday, Mr. Gregory Peck, obscured in the image there. So from the random computer generator con... I am handed the name... Come on, print Print it, damn you. Emily Lien, or Lien. I'm terribly sorry if I'm pronouncing your very exotic-sounding name wrong there, but Emily, you are the winner of the Audrey movies. Just send me an email at adam at attaboyclarence.com with your address, and I will drop Audrey in the post for you. I had the distinct pleasure of appearing on our local radio station in the past week, where I was interviewed about all things podcasty by the lovely Mr. Chris Capel. So thank you for having me, Chris. We talked about old movies, podcasting, and some of the rather more exciting developments taking place for this show, which you can hear all about if you go over and listen. I will drop a link in the show notes if you wish to do that. Coupon number 17. Ration coupon 17. Oh, that's me. Yes, hello. I'm coupon number 17. Are you planning to use your shoe ration coupon to buy white shoes? Yes, I'm starting a new career as a pimp next week. If so, give them the best of care. Keep them clean with Energine Shoe White. What, the girls or the shoes? No shoe white can make your shoes look whiter than Energine Shoe White. It's made with the very whitest pigment known. Interesting. So it's made with skin from my dad's legs, then? For the best of care for the white shoes you wear, remember Energine Shoe White. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Once I lived a life of a millionaire Spending my money I didn't care I carried my friends out for a good time 
That was the glorious Bessie Smith with Nobody Knows When You're Down and Out from 1929. Awesome. Well, this is a classic movie show, so let's talk classic movies, shall we? I've dedicated the show to Edward G. Robinson before, and you can hear the story of his early life on Bullets and Blood Part 2. But you can never have too much of a good thing, and he looms large in the films I like, generally because he was one of Warner Brothers' biggest stars during the 30s and 40s. And Warner movies are as addictive as cakes to old Adam, let me tell you. You've probably all seen Little Caesar and Key Largo, and of course, the amazing Dr. Clitterhouse. But you just let me tell you about 1934's The Man With Two Faces, why don't you? Because it's such a weirdly wonderful little movie. In this bizarre little tale, Edward G. Robinson stars with Mary Astor, Ricardo Cortez, May Clark, and Louis Calhoun. Doctor, dear, why are you such a bother? The bother was getting you well enough to act at all. If you think it's been a picnic... Oh, all right, I'll rest. Do you mind if I get a little excited? I do. It's the first time in three years. Doctor, why did all those people remember me? Why shouldn't they? You weren't entirely unknown, you know. Oh, I know, but comebacks, you know what they are. Critics staying home out of kindness. And the Times saying you were adequate. Jessica Wells, played by Mary Astor, is a world-famous actress who's returned to the stage after a three-year absence, helped by her actor brother Damon played by Robinson. 
Jessica is recovering from a complete mental breakdown following the death of her emotionally and physically abusive husband, Vance. I was in front the night she collapsed. And they dismissed the audience. Why, you thought she'd been drugged. A lot of people said it was drugged. Oh, yes, there were all sorts of stories around. But the truth was that husband of hers, Tenley Vance. From what I've heard, he must have been the lowest form of animal life. You put it mildly. However, the celebrations are muted when Vance shows up very much alive. My name, as a rule, is Stanley Vance, prince consort of this lovely and somewhat startled young lady. To make matters worse, Vance's presence seems to trigger a catatonic state in Jessica, who mysteriously seems to lose all willpower, becoming a kind of zombie, unable to think for herself, and under the complete control of her evil husband. Seeing that his sister will not survive another spell of life with Vance, can her actor brother Damon come up with a way to rid them all of Vance forever? Normally, my sister is, I think, the most promising young actress in America. Mm-hmm. But with you around, she turns into a colorless automaton that I wouldn't trust with the job of carrying a tray across the stage. Now, there, there, there's misfortune for you. I marry the most promising actress in America, and the little woman goes to pot on me. Mr. Vance... Why do you stand in the way of your own opportunity? Well, I, I, I do, don't I? I'm an impractical creature, I guess. Oh, no, you're not. But it does seem out of character. Such a weird little high-concept melodrama, mainly due to the supernatural overtones surrounding Vance's mental control of his wife. It's based on a play called The Dark Tower, which was written by George S. Kaufman and Alexander Walcott. Interesting side note here, in 1938, future American President Richard Nixon starred in a production of The Dark Tower where he met the woman who would become his wife. Anyway, back to the film. I can't really talk about the plot much more because I think, I think that the subsequent plan put into action against the evil Vance by Damon is supposed to contain something of a twist. I mean, the twist is sort of given away by the film's title and the film's poster. But far be it from me to ruin any kind of story point, I will stray away from spoilers. If you don't see this twist coming, though, I will be very surprised and very disappointed in you. As for the cast, obviously Edward G. Robinson is excellent. He really does chew the scenery in a variety of delightful ways. The whole repartee he has with Mae Clark throughout the film is very well done, too. She plays his co-star and aspiring girlfriend, and the burgeoning relationship between them both is wonderful to watch. Aunt Martha, this is Miss Daphne Flowers, America's most wooden actress. How do you do, Miss Flowers? I saw you in the play, and I thought you were excellent. Oh, well, it's a lousy part. Well, uh, wait till you see an actress in it, my dear. The entire film is stolen from under the noses of everyone else, though by a completely dastardly performance by Louis Calhoun as the wicked Vance, who's an incredibly good villain. When Jessica falls under his spell, it does turn into an almost horror film. It's remarkably well done. The mental control of his wife is very chilling indeed, and it plays as a somewhat exaggerated but nevertheless terrifying parable about marital abuse. I have to say, it's not a film that will live forever in your memory. It has far too many cracks in its joins. But The Man with Two Faces is a very watchable, very intriguing drama, flavoured with supernatural notes, moments of high comedy, and a little mystery that'll certainly keep you glued. Seek it out, you won't be disappointed.
On to something a little more familiar, I'm sure. Something of a raucous comedy from 1938, A Slight Case of Murder, starring Edwards G. Robinson alongside Ruth Donnelly, Alan Jenkins, Jane Bryan, Edward Brophy, Harold Huber, Bobby Jordan, Margaret Hamilton. Goodness me, it's the movie that just keeps on giving. Folks, here's the last keg of prohibition beer in the house. Marco's Ether, and it's on the house. Great setup here. Robinson plays Remy Marco, the gangster in charge of the Gold Velvet Brewery, which all the way through Prohibition kept desperate drinkers supplied with beer to drink. The problem was that Gold Velvet beer was the worst tasting beer in the world. It's just that no one had the heart to tell Remy, and with alcohol in short supply, they simply had to hold their noses and make do. Well, they've been drinking my beer for four years, ain't they, and liked it. They had to like it. Well, they're going to keep on drinking it more than ever now. It's going to be the same beer, the same customers. They're going to be just as thirsty as they ever was. But now that Prohibition is at an end, Remy wants to go straight to take gold velvet beer to the masses. And so he declares an end to his mob's illegal activities, announcing that he is to become a legitimate brewery. The problem is that why would the public want to drink gold velvet now that they can get their hands on the good stuff. Would it be shinless, no wiser, or gold velvet? Anything but gold velvet. <laughs> I'm sorry. We are not renewing our order on gold velvet beer. This joint used to take care of two dozen barrels of Marco stuff a week in the old days. Those days are over. They want real beer now. What was in that glass? Gold velvet beer. Take it away. I'm not having a toothpaste. <laughs> Facing bankruptcy, and with a mere few days left to somehow come up with the money to save his beloved brewery, Remy retreats to his holiday home in Saratoga. But little does he realize that a nasty surprise is lurking there and awaiting his arrival. Any sign of him yet? If there was, I'd tell you. What's the matter? Still sore? Certainly I'm sore. We ought to lay him out of here with that 500 Gs. Come up here to take care of Remy, didn't we? That's the main thing. Stick-up we done was just an accident. Accidents will happen. Yeah, but with all the dough we got, we ought not be waiting around for nobody. What are you sparking about? You'll get your cut. Nobody gets no cut till we do the Remy job and get out of here. One job a day is enough for me. So, as you can see, lots going on in this very breezy and very funny little tale of a crook with a heart. In fact, we soon see that the only crooks are the supposedly legitimate businessmen and bankers who lurk in the shadows waiting for Remy to fail so that they can swoop in and steal his empire. And so, with a remarkable stable of some of Warner's greatest crooks, including Robinson, Alan Jenkins, and Edward Brophy, you are treated to the fact that despite their guns and gangs, these are for once the good guys. Ruth Donnelly completes the gang as Remy's long-suffering wife, who's determined to add a touch of class to her new legitimate household. And Jane Bryan is adorable as Remy's well-educated daughter, who has some news of her own when she arrives home to visit. This definitely has its feet planted firmly between the farce and the screwball genres, and it's based on a play by Damon Runyon, which should give you an idea of the characters. Very earthy, very witty, very lovable, and with something of a fairy tale ending. You may remember me telling you about another of Runyon's screen stories, Lady for a Day, some time ago. It definitely has that tone. 
In terms of plot, it has so much going on that it does become one of those movies that actually improves with subsequent viewings. You have the beer racket going legit. You have Remy's daughter coming home. You have the juvenile delinquent who comes to stay. You have the murder plot at the Saratoga house. The bankers trying to steal the brewery. The attempts to break into high society. It really is breathlessly paced and very, very funny. It helps no end that it is also packed to the rafters with some of the most charming of Hollywood's supporting players and crowned, of course, by a splendid performance from Edward G. Robinson who really couldn't put a foot wrong during this period. So yet another feather in the Warner gangster hats then? A wickedly funny and slyly subversive satire of the gangster movies you'd seen before that also stands as one of the best in that genre. Definitely seek out A Slight Case of Murder from 1938, you'll love it. On to one of my favourite of all the golden age genres, a medical biopic. Now, this is Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, starring Edward G. Robinson, Ruth Gordon, Otto Kruger, Maria Uspenskaya, Donald Crisp, Montague Love, Albert Bassaman. In fact, let's just say that everyone in Hollywood is in this film, and here is a clip. Katie, I'm going to resign. Quit the hospital. I can't endure it quit the hospital? To do what, Paul? Try and find out something. We know so little in medicine, so very little. We're groping in the dark, bumping into things the nature of which we don't know. Of course, the first thing you notice about the movie is that title. I mean, if you've seen the amazing Dr. Glitterhouse, then the likelihood is that you weren't expecting a movie about a doctor who turns to crime in order to test his scientific theories. Well, seeing a title like Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet may cause you to think otherwise, right? This must be a film about a doctor who has something to do with crime. Wrong! The magic bullets referred to in the title are, now I must get this right, chemical compounds injected into the human body which can identify and eradicate certain microbes that cause disease. Uh, maybe one of you gentlemen remembers my staining the tubercle bacillus. We're following the same idea of affinity, I compounded an arsenic preparation, which when injected into the bloodstream, combines with the microbe and destroys it, like a magic bullet. Dr. Ehrlich was in fact a very interesting fellow in real life. He was persecuted for his Jewish faith and was all but wiped out from the German history books when Hitler came to power. But this is the man who invented chemical treatments for blood, chemotherapy, and who was also responsible for discovering a cure for diphtheria and syphilis. Anyway, you know that I love a good Golden Age biopic, especially a medical one. The story of Louis Pasteur is one of my favourites. Well, Dr. Ehrlich's magic bullet is very much in that vein. Pun intended. So Robinson plays Dr. Ehrlich, a crusading doctor who takes it upon himself to solve many of medicine's mysteries using tireless research and often at the expense of both his professional and personal life. Paul, you'll pass. No, it will not pass. If you please, if you don't tell Haiti, I will. Tell me what? Paul is ill, very ill. What's the matter with him? He contracted tuberculosis while working on that deadly microbe. His latest and greatest crusade is the wipeout syphilis, which he's been trying to treat for many years. But the subject of sexually transmitted disease is as taboo as it was when the film itself came out. 
The medical profession seemed willing to simply let the sufferers of this hideous malady crawl off to their corners to die. But Dr. Ehrlich thinks he can find a cure that will save them. Dr. Ehrlich, what are you experimenting on now, may I ask? Syphilis. I beg your pardon. Herr Doctor, did you say... Uh... Yes, Rashbier. He said syphilis. Well, I declare. First up, that cast is ridiculous. It's very rare that you see a cast and think, good God, I know who every single one of those players are. This is a very star-packed affair, and everyone is superb in it. Except, I'm afraid to say, Ruth Gordon, who plays Dr. Ehrlich's wife. For some reason, her performance seems very wooden, almost as though she's in a school play. Now, I've seen her in lots of films like Harold and Maud and Rosemary's Baby, and I know how good an actress she was. But in this film... She is rather terrible, unfortunately. I mean, when you're being acted off the screen by Maria Uspenskaya, then you know you've failed hard. Also, her makeup is appalling, which obviously isn't her fault, but everyone in the film ages appropriately, except for Ruth Gordon, who simply put some white powder in her hair. At one point in the film, she's supposed to be in her late 70s, and she looks about 21. It's a minor point, I know, but it really does take you out of the film, especially when the performances and effects all around her are so good. As for the drama itself, this is firmly in the Louis Pasteur mold. You have the medical bigwigs doing all they can to thwart Ehrlich's progress while he single-handedly crusades to wipe out disease. You have the tense moments when his medicines are put to the test for the first time. Will they work? Will they fail? You have a court case finale. You have a veritable overload of medical jargon that you can kind of understand. And you have a towering central performance by Robinson who really proves his chops as the gentle doctor who becomes a medical legend. So trust me, if like me, you are a fan of the Golden Age biopic, that is to say a rapidly paced, heavily sanitized version of someone's life with added Hollywood glamour and tension, then you will most definitely enjoy Dr. Ehrlich's magic bullet. Stupendous stuff. Lastly today, a very odd and rather delightful comedy, which once again stars Edward G. Robinson against Alan Jenkins, this time also with Humphrey Bogart, Ralph Bellamy, Donald Crisp, and Anne Southern. This is part gangster film and part Frank Capra movie, directed by Lloyd Bacon and originally proposed as a James Cagney vehicle, although ultimately the part went to Edward G. Robinson, and I have to say, I think that was wise. Definitely one of the quirkier gangster movies that Warner made. This is from 1940, and its name is Brother Orchid. This is murder. Just plain murder. Besides, this is the first time in the history of this organization rod has had to be used. You know, you guys, by pulling this thing, you made little John awful brokenhearted. Oh, boss, you shouldn't take that altitude towards us. The guy was chiseling in on us. Me and Philadelphia Powell caught him red-handed. Sure, boss. Everybody thought you'd be glad to have that guy illuminated. Oh, that ain't it. The job was pulling Molly Madigan's. The police had closed up the joint. Now where's the guy going to get a plate of corned beef and cabbage in New York? Lay off, will you, Johnny? The guy's washed up, ain't he? You bet he's washed up. So is Molly Madigan's business. So is our record, and so am I. What do you mean? You heard what I said. I've been getting fed up on this business, and I've been thinking of getting out. This here latest transaction convinces me. Boss, you don't know what you're saying. I know exactly what I'm saying. I'm fed up on this business. I don't see no career in it no more. Besides, I'm too sensitive. 
So as we heard there, Robinson once again plays a crime boss who decides to go straight. This time he's little John Sato, who's decided to hang up his pistol and as he puts it, get himself some class. He hands over the reins of his empire to his number two, Jack Buck, played by Bogart, and off he goes. But it isn't long before he's penniless, and realizing that he misses the rackets, goes back to his gang to take up the reins once more. But Buck isn't giving up just like that and tosses Sato out on his ear. Sato swears revenge and begins putting together a new gang, but when word of this reaches Buck, he decides that the only thing to do is to kill Sato dead. Hello, Johnny. Glad to see you, pal. Hello, Jack. What's the gag? You're all alone, Johnny. This is a good time for you and me to have a little talk. I'll take that rod out of my back. I'll listen. Warm in here. How about you and me stepping outside for a few minutes, huh? I'm comfortable here. Yeah, but I'm not. The music upsets me. Makes me nervous. My hands are shaking. You know what I mean? Come on. Sato manages to escape Buck's clutches and flees into the hills surrounding the city where he discovers a monastery run by Brother Superior, played by Donald Crisp, who offers Sato a place to live. Well, of course, Sato sees immediately that this will be a great place to hide and takes up his place among the monks, coming to be known as Brother Orchid. And as the days and weeks pass, he's slowly won over to their gentle way of life. But, of course, it isn't long before Sato's violent past begins to catch up with him. And what will this mean for Brother Orchid and his new friends? Well, well now, I have a surprise for the brothers. What is it, Brother Superior? The roses brought two dollars more than we anticipated. So as a reward, I've decided to take the money and give you all a treat. A treat? What's it going to be? On Thursday for lunch, we shall have watermelon. Watermelon marvellous. Watermelon? <laughs> Why, we haven't had watermelon for over two years. Now, it'll be quite a delicacy for us. Yeah, what are you doing? Shaving your head, Brother Orchid. Oh, you George. Well, do you have to? No, it's quite optional. Well, nothing doing. See, I got my looks to think about. Such an interesting film, almost transcendental at times, and I realise how silly that sounds considering the subject matter, but how refreshing it is to see a lead character in a classic movie slowly rediscovering his soul and humanity for reasons other than the love of a good woman. Here, the main character really does, quite by accident, find his place in the world and in the most unusual of surroundings. Interestingly as well, this was one of five times that Robinson starred opposite Humphrey Bogart, who was kind of still a supporting player at Warner's, but who was just about to break through to leading man status. In every single appearance together, Robinson always beats Bogart, either by killing him or by arresting him, except for in 1948's Key Largo, when Bogart was cast as the hero due to his star power and Robinson was cast as the bad guy. This film, Brother Orchid, was the last time that Robinson beats Bogart. As I say, this was originally to have starred James Cagney, and as much as I love Cagney, I cannot see him in this role, and when you watch it, I think you'll agree. There's something about Robinson, about his appearance even, that seems to fit this role like a glove. There's a whole section in this movie where he goes from being a rather well-groomed, dapper gentleman to a slightly dishevelled monk with crazy wind-blown hair and simple garments, and he's so perfect. 
I also have to give a shout out to Anne Southern, who plays Sato's former girlfriend. In so many of these types of stories, you seem to find out that the girl is duplicitous and only out for the money. What a surprise and relief then to find that Southern's character is benevolent, faithful, warm, and so wise, and completely self-reliant, a successful female lead who really shines, and much of her charm and appeal comes from Southern's brilliant playing of the character. So please go and seek out Brother Orchid, a genuine oddity, and certainly one of the more memorable crime flicks they made there, a true classic that's as warm and intelligent as it is thrilling. Well, for your radio entertainment today, why don't we take a trip over to the old gold comedy show, which was dedicated to adapting some of the screen's brightest comedies for the air, and which in 1945 decided to do just that with a slight case of murder. But it couldn't very well just plonk any old star in the lead role, so it had the good sense to bring back Edward G. Robinson for another outing as Remy Marco, and the even better sense to invite the peerless Alan Jenkins back with him. So tighten up the girdle, because your sides are about to split as we join the old gold comedy show for their adaptation of A Slight Case of Murder, starring Edward G. Robinson and Alan Jenkins. See you afterwards. From Hollywood, California, the makers of old gold cigarettes present the Comedy Theater. The only radio program that brings you every week the greatest stars and the greatest comedies. Tonight's play, the radio version of the Warner Brothers production, A Slight Case of Murder, starring Edward G. Robinson with Alan Jenkins. And here is the director of the old gold Comedy Theater, Mr. Harold Lloyd. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. For tonight's play, we have selected a nice, cheery little item entitled, A Slight Case of Murder. It's a story that deals with a benevolent gentleman, a former bootlegger of some importance, whose tenderness of heart is equaled only by his firmness of mind. For such a role, whom could we have chosen but me, but Edward G. Robinson? Um, I checked my guns at the door, Harold. <laughs> Good. Although we all know that in real life, you're hardly the kind of a person you've portrayed so often on the screen. Well, which is rather a fortunate thing. Otherwise, think of what might have happened to the population of this country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a relief to know that you prefer collecting musical albums rather than machine guns. However, in the play, you're Remy Marco, a man whose beer kept a lot of people from being thirsty during Prohibition. But when Prohibition was repealed... I decided to go legitimate. I called the boys in and I said to them, Boys, from now on we're going to be legit. From now on this ain't no still, it's a brewery, see? (laughs) We're going to have real class, just like any business enterprise. So uh, dump the artillery. And did they? Well, there was a little grumbling. The boys felt kind of naked without their persuaders, but they dumped (laughs) the stuff. They dumped it and we went into business making real beer. Mm Mm-hmm. The only thing was, I wasn't accustomed to doing things legitimate. Also, my beer wasn't so good, so after a while, I found myself in a kind of a hole. I owe the bank 40 grand, and I didn't have it. Mm. You see, I'd send my daughter Mary to Europe to get a fancy education, and that cost dough. So when the bank threatened to foreclose on the brewery, I didn't have it. What did you do? 
Well, I got my wife and my daughter and my boys together, and we all drove up to a house I used to rent in Saratoga for the racing season. Mary had gone to her room, and I was talking to my wife, Nora, in the library. Oh, it's well being back here. Yeah, it is a nice dump, isn't it? For example, Remy, observe the architecture. The what? The way the joint is laid out. Oh. <laughs> Page four. Yeah? Mike, since you've been a servant, you ain't learned nothing. You call Remy, sir, I'll bat your ears off. Okay. I mean, uh, yes, ma'am. Hey, sir. <laughs> well, what's the matter, Mike? Well, I uh, went into your bedroom to open up a couple of the windows. Well, that was very thoughtful of you, Mike. Yeah, only, uh, I don't think you can use that room. Why not? There seems to be some people in it. People? What people? How many people? Well, there's, uh, four fellas sitting around in chairs. Did you tell them to get out? Well, I'll tell you, I thought I'd speak to them about it, but, uh, them people are in no position to listen to much. They don't seem to be alive. What, you mean they're dead? Well, that's about what it comes to, boss. I never had a such gall in my life. What does the landlady mean by going away and leaving four dead people in the house? It ain't sanitary. <laughs> now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Nora. Uh, Mike, uh, what was wrong with those fellas? Well, boss, somebody shot them. Shot them? Uh-huh. Right in that room. Interrupted their card game, too. One fella had a full house. They're sitting there just as natural as anything. Well, you got to get them out of there. I can't have people like that around the house. What did the neighbors think? What did Mary's fiancé, that white one fella, what did he think of me coming while they were there? What would anybody think? Uh, we better call up the Board of Health and tell them we want to use that room. Boss, <laughs> I don't think you'd better do that. I don't think we want any outsiders in on this. You know who those fellas are? Who? One of them is Little Dutch. Little Dutch. Then there's Black Hat Gallagher, No Nose Cone. And the other's a fella I don't know. He must be a total stranger. What difference does it make who they are? Now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. No, uh, say, those are the fellas I had a lot of trouble with in the old days. They tried to see me a couple of times before. Carrying guns, too. Were they mad at you? Well, they used to own the brewery before I owned it. They claimed I never paid them for it. <laughs> Did you? No. Well, that was, uh... That was before I was legitimate. Oh. Yeah, and the trouble with those guys was they could never get over the feeling they had some right to that fury because they started it. Well, they must have had a argument upstairs and shot it out. Yeah, now the worst of it is some people might get the wrong idea about them being found in my house like this. Oh, why can't people let bygones be by... Uh, Mike, uh, get Lefty and Joe here. I think they would be interested. Sure. Oh, well, uh, Mike. Yeah? Which one had that full house? Little Dutch. I thought so. <laughs> Lucky think that little Dutch. The boys uh, nearly got the car loaded, Mike? Yeah, one more stiff to go. Uh. <laughs> Them bombs! That's just the kind of a dirty trick those fellas would pull. Mm. Leaving themselves in that kind of shape around your house. Yeah, that little Dutch never had no consideration for other people's feelings. Say, are you sure you boys didn't have a hand to knock them off? No such luck. Hey, boss. Uh, got them all in the car, Joe? Yeah, yeah, look, I got it all figured out. These must be the fellas who was knocked off. They knocked off that bookie's truck at the racetrack yesterday. Remember it was in the papers? Yeah, maybe you got something there. They knocked off the guy driving the truck, didn't they? Yeah, and they didn't get no dough. Oh, boy, the joke was sure on them. <laughs> then after they pull that job, they come straight here to take up that old matter of the bury with the boss. Yeah, some noise. 
reopening all wounds and me legitimate for years. They're all aboard, boss. The car's ready to go. Well, thanks, Lefty. Now, <laughs> now uh, let's take those people and throw them away somewhere. Where? Say, boss, you know the gentleman jockey, Mr. Brent? Yeah. I bet on a horse of his out at Belmont one day, and I think he pulled the goat. I know he pulled that goat. Though I hate to say anything against a gentleman jockey. Hey, boss, how would it be like to leave one of these stiffs on his doorstep? Now, that's fine. I don't care much for a gentleman jockey myself. How about Little Dutch for Mr. Brent? Oh, why not? We'll leave Black Hat Gallagher at Briggs Cottage around the corner. <laughs> Joe Briggs welched on me when he was making book at Jamaica. Hey, boss, there's a fella I don't like. He runs a restaurant downtown. Uh-uh, we can't take any downtown. Uh, Willie one on uh, Colonel Jake Schultz's lawn. Yeah, the Schultz Bureau guy. Yeah, once he told it around, I was making chemical beer. <laughs> well, we'll give him no-nose corn. He's the ugliest. How about uh, picking a spot for that stranger? He ain't no rose. Hey, boss, can't I keep just one of them in the kitchen till late? I'll take them downtown myself. It'll be no bother for you. Yeah, no, we got to get them out right away. Nora's getting sore. How about giving the little stranger to Marshall Preston, that blue nose, who's always wanting to make horse racing illegal? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, come on, let's get started. Oh, so he wants to close down the tracks, huh? Well, okay, he gets the stranger. Uh, Mike. You're staying with the missus. He and the other boys will make the deliveries. Oh, boss. Lefty went last time. We never had no fun. Now, you heard me stick here. You're getting spoiled. Always thinking of your own pleasure. Get going, Joe. Okay. Hey, this is sure some swell driveway in front of the house. Hey, boss. Yeah? It's a state trooper training in. He's heading toward us. Well, you know what to do. Step on it. You missed him. What's the matter with you lately, Joe? I don't know. It's a life I'm leading, boss. I was much better when I was illegitimate. Now here's Bob Williams with an important announcement of special interest to all smokers. As we've done before, due to wartime restriction, the cellophane wrapper on all gold packages will be removed for the warm months ahead. Cellophane is most effective during the winter months when artificial indoor heat tends to dry out tobacco. But during this summer, and for the first time since the beginning of the war, old golds will again have the special protection of aluminum foil, which was released in limited quantity for packaging. So, Old Gold's unique blend of many tobaccos, including its touch of rare imported Latakia tobacco, will still be doubly protected. Protected by aluminum foil and protected by apple honey, which helps guard Old Gold's against cigarette dryness. Yes, the grand fragrant aroma and swell taste of Old Gold will still be well protected to give you your full quota of smoking enjoyment. Now, if you're not already getting old golds wrapped in aluminum foil, they'll be coming to you in their new dress real soon. Distribution is just about complete. So keep asking for old gold and enjoy a finer tasting cigarette. And now back to Harold Lloyd in the second act of tonight's Old Gold Comedy Theater presentation, A Slight Case of Murder. Starring Edward G. Robinson with Alan Jenkins. All right, Mr. Lloyd. 
Well, while Marco and the boys were out making their little deliveries, the state trooper they missed drove up to the front door of the Marco home, rang the doorbell, and when Mary answered it, he promptly kissed her, which, considering Mary, was the only intelligent thing to do. Oh, Mary, darling. Dick. Hey, let's not talk. Let's, let's not. Mother is here, and I... Dick, what on earth are you doing in that uniform? Well, remember you told me back in Paris that you wouldn't marry me unless I stopped living on my father's money. I got myself a job. Yeah? Well, I got a job as a state trooper. Oh, well, I'm not sure. Mike told me there was a copper in here. Oh, you're Mrs. Marco, aren't you? What of it? Well, Mother, this is Dick. Oh. Oh, oh, oh forgive me for my harsh tone, Mr. Whitewood. But you must remember my shock. I think it was the law. It was only you. Uh, how did you ever happen to take up uh, trooping? Well, I was stopped for speeding in Westchester one day, and I... Did you beat the rap? I beg your pardon. Oh, where is Dad, Mother? Oh, he should be back at any moment now. He um, went out. It'll be very interesting having a policeman in the family. I hope. Oh, Mama, I... Oh, Copper. Are you in this house on any business? Well, no, sir. I... Well, then get out of here. Get out. <laughs> you got plenty of gall walking into an honest man's house. I don't have to stand for any coppers around me now. Oh, but Father... Benny, he's... I don't care who he is. I don't want no cops found on my joint. Benny, he's married intentional. Uh, intended. He's going to marry her. What? This is Dick Whitewood, Father. But you never told me your boyfriend was a cop. He just became one, Father. Well, he should have resisted that temptation. <laughs> Coming around dressed up like that, scaring people. Uh, why don't you two run out and have your dinner with Dick's father? I'll square the beef here. Oh, come on, Dick. We'll give Remy time to get used to the idea. All right, but we'll be seeing you later. I'll bring my own dad over. Hey, Mary doesn't think for one minute I'm going to let her marry a copper. Why, we'd never be able to hold up our heads again. Why, Remy, ain't you forgetting that we're on the side of law and order ourselves? Oh, right? sure, but we don't have to have it right in the house. Remy. <laughs> oh, Remy, he loves Mary, and Mary loves him. Just like you and I used to be. Yeah, but I was, ne I was never no copper. No man's job against him, Remy. If he's so stupid he can't get no other work, let him be a copper. <laughs> Come on, have your dinner and you'll feel better. All right, all right. Say, uh, you don't suppose he gets a pleasure out of arresting people? You know, there are coppers in this world like that. <laughs> How's it cooking, Joe? Oh, all right. Only it's kind of dull. If this legit stuff keeps up much longer, I'm going to kiss you guys goodbye and spend the rest of my days in an old lady's home. Oh, cheer up, will you, Mike? I hit the boss up for something on our back wages and he gave us 50 bucks on account. Gee, I didn't think he was that low. Even lower. Unless he digs up 40 grand by tomorrow, that guy posts from the bank is going to foreclose on a fury. Then we're out of everything. Marcus should have never gone legit. Well, he couldn't have kept prohibition from being repealed all by himself, could he? <laughs> hey, I've been looking at this paper here. There's an offer of 10,000 bucks reward for each of those guys who held up the bookie's truck, dead or alive. You mean those guys that we found and delivered are worth 10 grand apiece? Yeah. So what are we waiting for? Leave us go and recollect them. Gentlemen, <laughs> leave us go to work.
soup's a long time coming up. Lefty must be trying out a new recipe or something. Remy, I wish you wouldn't take this thing about the boys being a cop so serious. You like him when you get used to him. Oh, I ain't got nothing against the kid. It's just that I don't like his advocation. Uh, Lefty. Uh, Lefty. Oh, we better go see what's holding him up. Oh, there's nobody in the kitchen. You're kidding. Hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, there's a note on the kitchen table. Let's see what it says. Dear boss, we have taken a half hour off. <laughs> Sign Mike. You know, I'm getting a little discouraged with Mike, Nora. Well, you ought to be. After all, you've done for him and give No, it ain't that. It's just that I can't teach him to spell. Look at the way spells took him with two O's. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> some people just ain't got it in them to learn real grammar. Now, you and me, Remy, on the phone. Now, I'll take it, Nora. Hello? Marco, this is Post. Who is it, Remy? Uh, Post, the guy from the bank I owe that dodo. Uh, how are you, Post? I'm all right, thanks. I'm stopping at the Shorford Hotel. Oh. Uh, Marco, the board of directors decided to call your note in. Decided? What, you, you came all the way up here to tell me that? I have all the papers with me. Unless your note's paid by 12 o'clock noon tomorrow, we have orders to proceed with the foreclosure on the brewery. Yeah, but you, but you can't do that, Post. Uh, look, uh, that brewery's the only thing I got. Uh, look, uh, no, wait, uh, it would be different if I didn't have the dough. I, I got it, but I need it for advertising, you know, uh, radio. Uh, uh, hello? Hello? He hung up. Remy, does that mean... Yeah. We're broke, Mama. The brewery, the townhouse, everything. Oh, I've been a sucker, a setup for a bunch of tin horn money lenders. It was only too, too quick to dish it out when I was making dough, but pull back their ears now when I need it. They're holding a note for a lousy $40,000, and if it ain't paid by tomorrow, everything goes. Well, Remy, we've been broke before. You've been in tough spots you always got out of. You'll get out of this you one. You bet I will. Trouble with me has been I've been playing the other guy's game. I've been trying to be legitimate, and it ain't my racket. I don't know the rules, so I've been behind the eight ball. But beginning right now, I'm going to be illegitimate. <laughs> oh, that's the doorbell. It must be Dick's own man. Oh, well, Whitewood, huh? Okay, uh, let me see. Now, here's where Marco goes to work. You know what I'm going to do, Nora? I'm going to ride outside there and sell that guy a half interest in the brewery. Well, we got them all back to the house. Yeah, lucky, too. I thought for a minute we was going to lose No-Nose Cohen when Colonel Schultz came along just then. <laughs> yeah, that was a swell idea. Mike telling him No-Nose is a friend of ours who got lost in the jag and was just leaning up against the door, resting. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, we can't keep those stiffs in here, in the car. Somebody's liable to come nosing around here. Well, where will we put the stiffs, Mike? Where we found them first, I guess. Up in the boss's bedroom. They'll be, uh, they'll be more private there. Well, well, it's, uh, you're Dick's old man, Mr. Whitewood. I guess that's why you look like him, huh? Uh, have a glass of beer. I never drink, sir. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, uh, like my library? 
Had some books put in. Oh. Isn't that customary? Hmm? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> Mr. Marco, after meeting you and your wife, I'm deeply concerned, sir. I'm afraid... Oh, that... you mean about them getting married? Well, that's all right, sir. You can stop worrying. Oh, really? But, Mr. Marco, perhaps I should explain that we Whitewoods came over on the Mayflower... Now, don't apologize, Mr. Whitewood. Oh. <laughs> apologize? I don't hold a man's past against him. Oh. Now, look, Mr. Whitewood, to prove it, I like you, I'm going to let you become a partner in my brewery. You are? Yeah, for a lousy 40 grand. But I don't... Uh, furthermore, I'll tell you what I'll do. I got my picture on the bottles. When you're my partner, I'll put your picture on the cans. <laughs> Ridiculous, sir. I have no intention of investing in any brewery and... Uh, what? Uh, what's, the, what's the matter? My, my heart, I get these attacks. Oh. I, I must lie down. Oh, say, that's too... Uh, huh. Well, I, I know. You, you, you go right on up to my bedroom and lay down there. Uh, <laughs> first door to your left at the head of the landing. Now, you go on. Go on. I'll explain to the folks. And while you're up there, you think over my proposition. Uh, go on now. Thank you. It uh, should uh, ought to be nice and peaceful up there. Absolutely nothing to disturb you. <laughs> well, he didn't sound so enthusiastic. Maybe he... What? What? Uh, go away, Mike. What are you? I'm thinking. But I got something to tell you. It ain't important. Nothing is important except raising 40 grand for that foreclosure. And... That's what I want to tell you about. Hmm? You remember those four fellows we found up in your bedroom? Well, sure. Well, there was a 10 grand reward out for them. 10 grand for each of them, dead or alive. Dead or alive. Ten times four... Makes 40 grand. Yeah, what we give them away? Now, boss. Me and the boys brought them back. Mike. Mike, you're a good boy. <laughs> well, then all we got to do is turn them over. No, we can't do that on account of the cops might be suspicious of us. Uh, where'd you park the stuffs? Right in the same room where we found them, in the closet. And you mean up in my bedroom? Yeah. We figured they was accustomed to that room. But Whitewood just went up there. He ain't well. Suppose he was accidentally to open that closet. Nah, nothing like that ain't liable to happen. Boss, don't look now. But is that Whitewood at the head of the stairs? Help! Murder! Police! That is Whitewood. <laughs> Well, there are always two ways to look at a thing. Isn't that right, Bob Williams? Oh, I think so, Harold. Now, you take the fellow who's planted his first victory garden. He's set out rows of tomatoes and cool, crisp lettuce to go up with him. But instead of lettuce, up comes spinach. <laughs> well, either that fellow can swear off gardening altogether, or he can just relax and say to himself, Why be irritated? Light an old gold. Yes, sir, you smokers. An old gold sure brings you a harvest of real pleasure, grand extra flavor, plus special protection against cigarette dryness. You see, old gold's blend of great tobaccos, including a touch of tasty Latakia tobacco, is conditioned with the special moisture-protecting agent we call apple honey. Made from the juice of fresh apples, it actually helps prevent cigarette dryness. So, for a better, keener, tastier smoke, light an old gold. And remember, while we're producing all the cigarettes possible without sacrificing old gold quality, our armed forces get first consideration. At the same time, we're doing our utmost to assure fair distribution of remaining old golds. So, if you must be content with substitute brands today, be content to know that tomorrow, if you ask, your dealer may have old gold. <laughs> 
And now back to Harold Lloyd and the third act of tonight's Old Gold Comedy Theater presentation, A Slight Case of Murder, starring Edward G. Robinson with Alan Jenkins. All right, Mr. Lloyd. Well, if you're going to have corpses around the house, it's nicer to have them worth $10,000 apiece, which is what the corpses Remy Marco had were worth. Unfortunately, he couldn't afford to have them found dead. People might think things which makes it a ticklish proposition when Mr. Whitewood, who didn't care for Remy anyway, apparently found them in Remy's bedroom closet and came staggering out, screaming, Bill! Police! <laughs> What's wrong? Brother, what happened? Benny, what's the old gent yelling about? Mr. Marco. Yes? I went to the closet to hang up my coat. And, Mr. Marco, yes? there are four of your friends in that closet with guns. Well, can you imagine that? Well, can it be that uh, somebody's intruding on Marco? One of them attacked me, and the others in the closet shook their fists and waved their guns. Boss, he thinks they're alive. I know, I got an idea. Say, um, I just thought uh, those people up there must be the ones who held up that truck. Yeah, that's it, boss. Them there parties are the bandits. But these bandits do something right away. Uh, 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 all right. Where's the phone? Uh, over there, Dick. Well, what are you going to do with the phone? Why, well, just this. Hello, operator. This is the Marco place. What do I want? I want a policeman. But, Dick, you're a policeman. Huh? Oh, I got it. Well, that gives me an idea. Young fellow, here's your big chance. Big chance for what? To become a hero. Oh, right. Uh, boss, what did you think he's doing? Taking out his gun and standing at the foot of the stairs. Hey, what do you think you're doing, Dick? I'm guarding the stairway. <laughs> Get a load of that, boss. He thinks they'll all leave by the front door. That's no good. <laughs> when, the other, when the other cops come, they'll find the steps upstairs already dead. I got it. Uh, uh, look, Dick, uh, do you want to make a big shot out of yourself? How? Well, you go up to that room and order them to come out of that closet with their hands up. But suppose they don't. I lay 500 to 1, they don't. Well, uh, if they don't, or even if they hesitate, Dick, you start popping. Uh, don't try to open the door or they shoot your ears off. Yeah, they're dead. Shut. <laughs> don't you think it'd be wiser to wait for reinforcements? Young man, you're wearing the uniform of your country. Uh, anyways, your state. You want people to say you're disgraced? He's right, my son. You're a whitewood. Uh, uh, come on. Come on, uh, me and Mike will go with you. Uh, Mike, take his other arm, and we'll help him upstairs. Okay, boss. That's my son. Don't apologize, Pop. You can't help it. Hey, hey, Dick. Walk a little bit. Well, uh, me and Rummy can't carry you all the way. Well, here we are in the bedroom. Hmm. Closet door is locked. Mike, uh, let go of him. Uh, Dick. Huh? Order them to come out. Oh. Come on. Come on with your hands up, or I'll shoot. Well, they don't seem to be coming out. Surprise. <laughs> what did I better do? Well, uh, seeing it's a rented house, I kind of hate to do it, but you better shoot. Uh, all right. <laughs> you hit the chandelier. <laughs> you better try keeping your eyes open, Dick, and aiming a bit lower, say, uh, seven or eight feet. <laughs> No, okay, I, I, I'll try. That a boy. Maybe the closet door ain't uh, quite as big as the side of a barn, but you can't miss. 
Go on, let her go. What happened, Dick? Are you all right? Son, son. Well, nice work, Dick. You know, something tells me you got him. Mike? <laughs> open the closet door. Okay, boss. I think he got him, too. Oh! There goes one falling down. Step number two. Number three. And number four. Dick, you got them all. Hey, boss. The kid fell down, too. <laughs> Just fainted. After all, facing a closet full of bandits is a strain. Mary, I give my consent to you marrying him. That boy ain't afraid of nothing. Much. Oh, dear darling. Mr. Whitewood, I will reconsider my offer to let you become my partner for 40000 Mike, uh, you sure we get ten grand apiece for the stiffs? Sure. Uh, Mr. Whitewood, it will now cost you one hundred grand to get your picture on the cans. Uh, Nora. Yes, Remy? After the cops cart the stiffs away, have the boys clean up the room. Oh, and Mike. Yeah, boss? Bring me a bottle of beer. Your beer? My beer. What do you want? What do you, what do you want to do? Kill me? And that was A Slight Case of Murder, starring Edward G. Robinson and Alan Jenkins. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining me this week. More Attaboy Clarence next week for patrons in the 43rd bonus show. If you aren't a patron yet, I urge you to sign up and hoover up all the bonus materials I've been creating for the past two years. Listen on to the end of this show to find out how. Until next time then, friends, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me. Take very good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.